Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. All right, welcome in. Travis Sheridan, Michael Calhoun with our weekly show about innovation and entrepreneurship nothing impossible. And we're going to take a look at so many different facets of St. Louis and how new approaches are bringing some new results, perhaps. We're going to talk with a tech entrepreneur whose first company was a smashing success. Now he's on to his second one, which is changing the way that we do work, getting rid of the busy work, you could say, the mundanity of work. And when I think of mundanity, I do think of education sometimes. You know, sometimes like educators are just bogged down with teaching to standards or prepping kids for tests, but there's a lot of room for innovation built into education. And we're going to talk to one of the uh, pioneers doing great work as it relates to innovation and entrepreneurship. And I can't wait to hear what Sharita, because we've talked with Sharita Love on Nothing Impossible before. And they just had a big event at Venture Cafe where people were, it's one of these where you get to go and literally witness, experience, communicate one-on-one with the folks who are, we've done profiles when there've been big companies, you get to see behind the scenes of agriculture, for instance, or healthcare, but this was a great one for education. Right. And we got to be, we were introduced to uh, teachers and administrators that are not just changing things for their classroom, but really changing things for the educational system. Wow. And uh, I think sometimes we don't think that innovation and education go hand in hand, but teachers are pretty smart people. Like they know a lot and let's see how they can apply their skills out, maybe outside of the classroom. And then we're going to talk with a writer for the rideshare guys. So many issues when it comes to transportation, scooters. I can't believe they put a speed limit on for the scooters in Forest Park. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Forest Park forever, but for slow. Yeah. Well, you can't have, if you're on your bike, you're out there, you're hitting your mile markers, and then some guy on a scooter just whizzes past 10 miles an hour over you. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge with especially electric scooters is there's no noise behind them. So mm. you, know, you can you can be sideswiped pretty easily, just, just like you know electric cars. There's not a lot of warning sign to let you know to get out of the way. Um, and we have to find a way for pedestrians and bikers and scooters to coexist. And scooters are becoming a bigger part of the transportation puzzle, I guess, especially as Metro redoes some of their bus routes. People may have to walk farther to get to the bus. Maybe they'll take a scooter in that that interim period if the scooters are around and if they're reliable. And uh, and then we're also going to talk with him, uh, the rideshare guy, about... I'm sure somebody of the listeners have ordered DoorDash or Grubhub or right. Uber Eats, one of these and services. You, and you have great service and you want to leave a tip. Where does that tip go? Well, you think, I mean, what's the definition of a tip, right? It should go to the person who provided that service to you. You would think so. You would think. It's not necessarily been the case, specifically with DoorDash. They're promising, though, that they'll do better. We're going to talk with an expert to find out what the what the deal is with these food delivery services and skimming your tips. That's low. That is low. I mean, a lot of people get into this gig economy because they have financial need, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and they are promised to be their own boss and make their own hours. And then you have the quote unquote, the man behind the scenes taking a little bit off the top. So we'll talk about so many issues. We'll get into all of those as we continue right after this with more Nothing Impossible. 
Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back, Michael and Travis with you. And so many issues when it comes to mobility and getting around, getting from here to there, Travis. So many different options. A lot of options and a lot of people, uh, given coming out of this uh, economic downturn in 2007, 2008, 2009, a lot of uh, people got into this gig economy looking at extra ways to make extra money. Yeah, we've had some revelations lately about how DoorDash pays their drivers. And if you leave a $6 tip, for instance, maybe that driver only got $4 in the past. They're promising that some changes are underway. And then also, you know, as Metro makes some changes to the bus lines and to Metrolink service in St. Louis, how do you get to the station? Maybe you might hop on a scooter now or take Uber and Lyft. A lot of transportation issues. Let's talk about it with somebody who covers them on a daily basis. Sergio Avidian, who's a senior contributor at the Rideshare Guy, joins us on KMOX. Thank you so much, Sergio. Uh, good afternoon. So, Sergio, tell us, give us a, a quick picture of, like, where is the current landscape of lo- ride-sharing? Uh, where, where is it today? Well, as we know, Uber and Lyft dominate ride-share in the United States. Um, but there are a couple of competitors that are coming around that I've written about last week. Uh, they're small, but uh, obviously they dominate. And the state of ride-share is good for, obviously, Uber and Lyft executives and their shareholders, not so much as shareholders since their IPO, they're both their stocks are down about 25-30%. Uh, but uh, for the driver, it's something else. I'm sure you guys read about it on a daily basis on uh, in the media that the drivers are complaining about their pay rates. But it's a look, it's, it's, I use it as a passenger myself. I'm an active driver, but it's great convenience. Uh, getting from point A to point B safely, and it's cheap, really, and it's almost competing with public transit now. So it's growing, and I'm sure it's going to keep growing, and uh, uh, so far so good as far as rideshare is concerned. As you mentioned on your promo, scooters obviously are coming around. Uber and Lyft are very involved in the scooter business as well. Uber just purchased a company called Jump, so they market their scooters and e-bikes through Jump, Lyft uh, is doing it under their own brand. Uh, as you said, no shortage of mobility. And it, it, it really seems interesting. I was down in Miami, Florida, and that's when I first saw the Lyft scooters. There was a Lyft van dropping off Lyft scooters, um, and I used Lyft usually from point A to point B. But what role are these scooters playing in that last mile? Uh, you know, infrastructure that a city can put in, whether it be light rail or even bus rapid transit, is very expensive. And once it's in, it's immobile for the most part. Uh, tell us a little bit about how these scooters are helping connect people to other transit hubs. Well, scooters um, initially came around. Obviously, there's other competitors outside Uber and Lyft. Uh, scooter, a lot of the scooter companies that uh, showed up first were copied by Uber and Lyft. So obviously, we all know about Bird and we all know about Lime, right? So they started the business first, and then Uber and Lyft thought it was a great connection between uh, when a passenger gets off, let's say, their Uber and Lyft to their, you know, to the to the to transition to their last mile or to to go to public transit that way. Uh, however, now it's uh, to me, it looks like. Uber and Lyft are kind of cannibalizing their own businesses as far as their ride-sharing is concerned. Um, as per Uber and Lyft's pre-IPO S1 document, most rides average about 67 miles. And uh, for the last 
two miles, I guess people will jump onto scooters instead of cars. So I'm not sure it's going to be super beneficial when it comes to Uber and Lyft using scooters and dumping their cars as far as rideshare. But time will tell. When it comes to those scooters, for instance, we've got a story here in St. Louis about Forest Park, lots of uh, trails where people go jogging or they're on their bikes, and they've put it, they've geofenced around the park and put a speed limit in. You can't go faster than 10 miles per hour on a scooter within the confines of Forest Park. And meantime, cities like San Diego are just saying, let's get rid of these. We don't, we don't want these scooters at all. Let's get rid of them. What are the different challenges? We've, we've got that one in the, in the park here in St. Louis, but what are some of the challenges that municipalities are facing with these scooters these days? Well, uh, when all these scooters companies came around, obviously, even with Rideshare, when Rideshare first started seven, eight years ago with Uber and Lyft, you know, the, the public policies were not there. There were no laws about these things, and, and the public policymakers were not ready, obviously, to accommodate the deluge of, of scooters that they're getting now. So to me, uh, you know, it, it's an issue. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. They're very prevalent in, let's say, in most areas of Los Angeles, especially in Santa Monica. And uh, people are complaining. I mean, these things are everywhere. In fact, there was a YouTube video that went viral about a couple of days ago. There were over 300 scooters, riders, took over Los Angeles downtown, and they caused a couple of major accidents. So they're becoming quite a bit of a headache, as you correctly mentioned. There are two guys actually in Santa Monica. They used to be in the auto repo business, and now they're getting into the scooter repo business. They're literally, you know, are dumped in front of people's homes or businesses, and they get called and they pick them up and throw them in the trash can, basically. So the lawmakers now are trying to catch up with what's going on, but I think, you know, the trains left the station, so we're going to find out how it's going to go. I do find it interesting that there are so many side hustles even around this gig economy and, and scooters. There are people uh, who uh, rent out vans or rent uh, get their own vans, and they're responsible for picking up scooters and charging scooters overnight. And there's a business model around that where the scooter company uh, pays people to charge the scooters and then place them back throughout the, throughout the region. Uh, Sergio, you mentioned that public policy was far behind when this new uh, when this new mode of transportation came out, whether it be ride sharing, uh, bike sharing, or even now these scooters. Do you see any cities that are starting to catch up, or will they catch up? Well, they are. I mean, Los Angeles um, is actually charging all these companies licensing fees per scooter. Um, they're also establishing some laws and and also trying to geofence them. And the scooter companies are also doing certain things about it, as we know. The life of a scooter is, on average, is about 45 days. So none of these companies are making money off of these things because they're either vandalized or, or stolen. Their, their GPS trackers are disabled. So everybody is trying to work. But, I mean, you know, which one should come first, the chicken or the egg, right? In this case, the scooters came first. Now the laws have to catch up. But a lot of cities getting complaints from their, their residents are trying to limit where these things can go, how fast they can go, where a rider could ride these things. Uh, let's say you can't ride them on, on the sidewalks, but then there is not enough bike lanes. There is not enough infrastructure to support all these scooters that are coming around. 
We're talking with Sergio Avidian, who's a senior contributor at the Rideshare Guy, about all the transportation issues we face these days. And when it comes to, I don't know if anybody's using a scooter to deliver food for Grubhub or Postmates or any of those, but there uh, have been some changes. DoorDash is finally acknowledging the uproar that rose after, uh, I guess the best way to describe their old pay model might be if uh, the driver was told, you're going to have an uh, estimated pay of $6 for this delivery, and uh, the delivery charge winds up being you know $5, and somebody tips $3. They might only get a dollar of that tip just to get them to the minimum. To the minimum quoted. Yeah, as opposed to just getting the whole tip. I mean, what what do we right. know about how uh, there have also been controversies, Sergio, about how Uber and Lyft drivers are paid too? But this DoorDash one has really burst into the public view. I don't know if it's affected how people have made their deliveries, though, if they've moved on to other services or not. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't just do one gig, right? So, if you're an Uber driver, you're probably doing Uber Eats as well. And if you're an Instacart um, shopper, you're also doing probably Grubhub or DoorDash, DoorDash being the largest delivery service in the country at the moment. Yeah, this thing hit about (laughs) a while ago. And, uh, you know, a lot of these companies have a, you know, I I, I call it fuzzy mass. It all adds up for them, but it somehow doesn't add up for the worker. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when this news broke, um, so, for example, I'll give you an example. Like, I would order DoorDash. Uh, my driver or my food delivery guy gets the order. He accepts the order. He goes, picks it up, brings it to my house, and DoorDash told the, the driver or the delivery guy person that uh, you're going to make $7 on this delivery. Well, I'm a generous tipper. I tip the person $10. So what they'll do is they'll take my $10, pay the delivery person $7, in fact, even keep the $3 extra for DoorDash themselves. So I was like, I when it first broke, um, obviously it was to, to a lot of people who tipped. That was that was an insult, basically. Why is my money going to your pocket instead of the delivery person's pocket? So obviously the CEO was all over Twitter and social media. They said they're going to fix it. Well, that was about a month and a half ago. It's still not fixed. But now they're saying that all the tips are going to go to the delivery person. Now, Uber Eats, the tips go to the delivery person. Uh, Grubhub passes it to the delivery person. So uh, time will tell. They haven't done anything about it yet, but at least they admitted it that you know their math didn't add up. It added up for corporate policy, but it didn't add up for the delivery guy. All right. Thank you so much, Sergio Avidian, senior contributor for the Rideshare Guy. We'll be back with more Nothing Impossible right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back. Let's continue talking about new ideas and new approaches when it comes to education in St. Louis. Travis Sheridan caught up with one of those on the leading edge of rethinking education in St. Louis. All right, I'm with Sharita Love, the program manager for EdHub in St. Louis. Uh, We've had Sharita on before to talk about what EdHub is doing, but last Thursday, or actually Thursday the 22nd, they had a big event over at Venture Cafe in Cortex announcing the new group of education fellows. But Sharita, talk to us first about what is EdHub? What is its role in the community and what is it that you're doing? Yeah, um, so EdHub STL is a physical and intellectual space. So it's um, 
platform for educators broadly to get together um, to really think about and reimagine what education can be like in St. Louis uh, with equity at the center. So, okay, intellectual and physical space. Yep. Uh, what do these educators do when they do come together? Yeah, uh, sir, there's a few ways that people can enter uh, EdHub as a platform. So um, it can be an institution, program, or organization coming to host their meeting, their event uh, at EdHub, at, at Innovation Hall, so that physical component, that physical space. Or it can be, and, and this is our greatest hope, um, from the events that we have, from uh, being able to have a space where educators can um, collaborate, kind of bump into each other, uh, the intellectual pieces where folks can actually continue the work uh, that may happen. Like if you uh, meet someone at EdHub at an event that we have, or even just being in the space hanging out, that uh, from conversations that are had, from some of the professional development opportunities, that you can move equity and education forward. You can move different ideas, innovative ideas forward so kids in St. Louis benefit most. Teachers are pretty smart people, right? Like. They're smart. Yes, they are. Okay, uh, and they have a certain skill set that they deploy in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But how have you seen them using this their brilliance in new ways to put kids at the center, not necessarily in a classroom application, but maybe it relates to policy or other changes that they're thinking about? Yeah, something that we've seen. So last week, you mentioned the big event that we had last week, and we were kind of taking a look back as we celebrated one year since our launch. And like a few things that we've seen, heard uh, from teachers, educators that are different uh, because of them interacting with the space or events that happen here at EdHub is uh, the collaborative piece. So maybe I had an idea for one thing, I connected with someone from uh, in my district and I had a connection with someone from another district and we've come together to think about uh, an initiative that can move forward uh, or an event that we can host collaboratively. That's one thing. Um, I would also think say that the conversations uh, around this space are moving towards action. Like folks are ready to build some coalition. They're ready to plug in. Um, they're ready to be connected so that um, they can use what they're learning, what they're talking about, what the collaborations have brought forth in a uh, in an action actionable way, how they can start to move what they're doing, what they're talking about forward. Now, you uh, each year you name a certain number of education fellows. Talk to us a little about what that is, and give us a couple of them that come to mind right away yeah. for you. Yeah, so uh, really excited. Uh, that's probably the, my favorite part about it, <laughs> yeah. is being able to, you know, do some deeper work on a uh, more personable level mm-hmm. with uh, educators in St. Louis. And so uh, the Ed Hub STL Fellowship, we just announced the new cohort. There's 10 mm-hmm. um, education, what we call intrapreneurs, so folks who are working within schools or systems to uh, innovate with equity at the center in education. And so um, we announced again 10 mm-hmm. and um, some folks, I guess I, if I can, you want me to name a few? Yeah, name a couple of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Don't name all 10. I'm not going to put you on the spot <laughs> for all 10. <laughs> right. Just like one or two that, that really stand out. Sure, sure. So, uh, okay, so uh, one fellow in particular, um, Anna Guzan. Mm-hmm. She's the co founder of Your Words STL, which is an organization that leverages. Um, media, writing, 
uh, podcasting, uh, working with students. So really uplifting their voice um, and giving them a platform to share um, uh, you know what they have to say like if students have experienced trauma or uh, usually don't have the, pro- the platform to talk about what's important to them mm-hmm. your words STL gives in that platform um, I'm trying to think Dr. Terry Harris uh, mm-hmm. who's a, a well-known educator here in St. Louis he's an administrator in the Rockwood School District um, and he is working on a platform called C where it is something that uh, works across districts at the administrative level, looking at ways that we are uh, truly integrating and embedding equity uh, within school districts, like practice, uh, systematizing equity, like what that looks like. Um, And then one more I'll bring forth is Cynthia Chappell, who Mm -hmm. is uh, a chemist uh, by trade, by day, uh, but she has taken her passion um, as a, a young black chemist and launched this organization called Black Girls Do STEM. And um, they've ran uh, several successful pilots in schools and organizations across St. Louis over the past year, um, are now at the funding stage and ready to scale their organization, looking at ways to support STEM learning for middle and high school girls in St. Louis, black girls in, mm-hmm. in St. Louis. You mentioned that some of the work happens across districts. Mm-hmm. Um, education, I mean, for all the listeners out there, people know that education is siloed. You yeah. know, even within a yeah. cam- even within a district within a campus, mm-hmm. English departments with English department, math with math, and that type of thing. Uh, how imp- how much of these educators just really loved being in a non siloed environment? The ability to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the business, bi- uh, biggest pieces of affirmative feedback that we've gotten is mm-hmm. uh, kind of this. Um, this thing around this neutral, innovative space mm-hmm. that kind of flattens all of that, you know, that yeah. silo, um, the aspects of silos within districts and organizations and school and such, uh, in a way that uh, is providing more access to one another, mm-hmm. e- even within a school or a system. Right. Uh, but then also ways that you connect across because, you know, once you're when you're in your thing, when you're in your school, when you're in your classroom, your program or whatever, oftentimes that's you really don't like put your head up and see like, oh, there's a great big world out here and yeah. other people that are doing similar things that I can learn from. So and, uh, you know, I think I've noticed that uh, not just to the not just the teachers getting together, but you I, I was looking around at Innovation Hall where you hold a lot of the events mm-hmm. uh, that a number of school districts are coming down and using this space mm-hmm. to hold their meetings. Yep. Uh, I know it's not a hotel ballroom, so it probably feels a little <laughs> bit cooler. Uh, but what what kind of things do you hear from the school districts and these different school administrators about access to a space like this or even uh, hanging out in a place like Cortex? That is that. They, as far as they know, it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> yeah. A place that is specifically geared and dedicated for, um, not exclusively, but, you know, this is the exclusive program here. Mm-hmm. So it is a space that's carved out for educators. And mm-hmm. it's something that they uh, are surprised, really, when they learn about uh, Ed Hub and, and Innovation Hall, that, that is this is a space for us, like, mm-hmm. as educators. Um, of course, the the coolness factor is one thing. Right, the shiny glass, the and shiny everything. glass, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the writable walls and the colors. Like it's it provides ins- inspiration mm-hmm. for them to think and be differently mm-hmm. uh, with one another, um, and inspires a different thought, a different energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Harris and I were just meeting last week, and he's like, you know, man, every time I come in here, I feel smart. <laughs> now this is. Uh, an executive in a school district, like yeah. many, many employees under him. Yeah. 
has a name uh, has a word doctor has in his the title. word doctor yeah. in his title he's pretty smart and he's yeah. pre- i mean he's pretty smart right like, and he knows this mm-hmm. but that's the first thing he says about this space when he walks in i feel smart when i'm in this space and so yeah so i'm gonna ask you to tell us a little secret something about your oh, heart oh, right oh. in your heart in your heart do you hope that Educators experiencing things like this, administrators experiencing things like things like this, will change education as a system. Huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Um, you know, it, it it's you know, it, it could seem that it is an indirect benefit. You know, providing space, mm-hmm. uh, hosting events. You know, working with ten fellows like very small pieces of a giant complicated puzzle mm-hmm. uh, but yeah that is our work by offering platform inspiring and empowering folks to connect and think differently holding equity at the center um, yeah that's our hope that kids mm-hmm. benefit from the work that we're doing the learning that we're doing um, that education will be better for our children in St. Louis so you've mentioned equity at the center several times you've yeah. mentioned children at the center several times I've read and heard that elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of this sounds very similar to the recommendations of the Forward Through Ferguson and the Ferguson Commission's report. Uh, tell us about the connection there. Yeah, uh, when we were, um, when Venture Cafe St. Louis and Skip and V, who's our partner in this work, were uh, just kind of brainstorming around the possibilities of what uh, this partnership can look like, what this work could look like, how we could leverage uh, the platform of Venture Cafe uh, for educators benefit in St. Louis. Um, that was my recommendation. We had mm-hmm. to look at the the Fourth through Ferguson report. Look at the work that's already been done. The, the work that's already yeah. been done. The data is there. It is clear. It has mm-hmm. been spelled out. Many many hours poured into this data. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a collection of work that has been renowned mm-hmm. all across this country um, and because of my connections I live in Ferguson mm-hmm. I've done a lot of work you know around um, equity since mm-hmm. the, the death of Michael Brown and so uh, that was my first comment to them was that mm-hmm. we have to look at the recommendations and um, it, that's where we kind of got our guiding principles mm-hmm. from the call to action uh, um, under the youth of the center piece of the report uh, which called for St. Louis to create an innovative education hub. And the reason I mention that is, um, you know, we are living through a summer that we've never seen before yes. in St. Louis. A lot yes. of kids being killed through violent methods, uh, mostly guns mm-hmm. uh, and young kids. I mean, seven, eight years mm-hmm. old kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we think about kids at the center, there's no. I think there's two places we think about: family and school. Yeah. Right. And yep. sometimes we we can't create systems that protect the family or change family. But talk a little bit about. You know, the role that school plays, education plays in protecting these kids, giving these kids a better pathway forward. Absolutely. Um, uh, The first thing I think about or one of many things that I think about when you when you say that, when you ask that question um, is Robin D'Angelo's work. Um, She has uh, a video that's out right now that's kind of circulating from teaching tolerance. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend that as Mm -hmm. well. But she talks about education being the belly of the beast. Mm -hmm. And it is a place that can either be a safe haven for our children um, if they come from certain Mm -hmm. communities, backgrounds, or it can be uh, a place of detriment, Mm -hmm. loss, um, not seeing yourself, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so there is tons and tons of work for us to do as a school system, Mm -hmm. as educators, to understand um, the inequities that exist for students in 
um, all communities, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, certain sectors of our community that we have to really pay attention to. Um, and I hope I'm answering the question. Yes, again, no, so. you are. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the the importance of looking at bodies of work um, mm -hmm. like the uh, Ford through Ferguson report, understanding that education is critical and key in looking at um, things that happen, outcomes for kids. And, you know, when you connect that to mm -hmm. the tragedies that we've seen over this past summer, you can't help but think about education. Think mm -hmm. about one of the first things that Mike Brown's mother said when he was murdered. Like, mm -hmm. she talked about his education. She yeah. talked about school yeah. and how hard it was for her to get her son through school. Mm -hmm. So... It's important. Well, Sharita, thanks for all the ways that you are infusing innovation and connecting it to the education sector. How can people learn more? What's the website for innovation and education and EdHub and all that good stuff? Um, you can connect with us um, from either the Venture Cafe, stl.org website or the Innovation Hall um, uh, .org website. Uh, we'll soon have our own website that launches, but yeah. right now, those are the best platforms to reach us. Um, I can also be reached, Sharita at VenCavSTL.org. There you go, Sharita Love, uh, Program Manager for EdHubSTL. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. All right, Michael is going to chat with David Karandish, the founder of Answers.com, is on to this next great thing capacity. Here with David Karandish at the offices of, well, the startup formerly known as Jane.ai, a big Series B round of funding and also a new name as the expansion continues. David, thanks for joining us on KMOX. And I guess first I'll ask, what do you do here? It has to do with artificial intelligence, right? Yes. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Capacity is uh, an enterprise AI platform designed to help teams do their best work. We connect to your company's apps, documents, and the knowledge of your team uh, to provide you with instant access to, the, to your corporate information. So what is the latest news, both the name change and the fundraising? So we recently moved from uh, being named Jane.ai to being uh, branding our, our domain under capacity.com. Uh, we did that because we're moving from being a chatbot only to more of a platform that can power the experiences you have throughout your day-to-day -day work. Uh, we also announced that we raised $13.2 million in our Series B round uh, from a variety of Midwestern investors. So a little bit of background, I guess, on what the service is. It seems like it cuts through a lot of the, if I work in healthcare or financial services, I've got to go to this person for this info and then check that database and then access this system. And it seems as if this cuts through a lot of those layers and gives you a... Um, a, a normal human speech kind of a way to interact with these systems, but I'll let you describe because I'm sure it'll be much better than that. Yeah, I mean, imagine if you had your own Siri or Alexa, but for the workplace, where you could ask it whatever questions you wanted, whether it's um, how many vacation days do I have, to where's the sales report, to um, more complex workflows like onboarding a new team member or even processing a loan in a mortgage context. Uh, so imagine a world where you didn't have to do all of those steps and stages manually. You could have an AI-powered platform uh, go perform those, those tasks for you. Uh, that's what we're bringing into the workplace. How did you get to this point? Uh, how did you, especially I could imagine hooking into all of these different apps and systems and different companies have different ways. I'm sure they have different levels of access they traditionally provide. What was that like scaling this company up and making all of those partnerships? So we built somewhere around 50 
different app integrations over the last two and a half years. Um, so each one takes a lot of work, uh, but in doing so, uh, we, we kind of learn the ins and outs of what it takes to connect to these external systems. Um, that's also led us to develop out our developer platform, where if, even if we haven't built a connector to capacity, uh, if your company has a uh, piece of software with a, a public API, meaning it can talk to other pieces of software, then uh, you can use our developer platform and connect it directly to the capacity platform. Do you have an example maybe of a customer? I'm sure you can't share all, all the examples of the ways that you've helped uh, companies, but maybe an example of a, a workflow that's made, been made simpler, something that people could relate to? Yeah, so we've got uh, clients in the financial services space who are using our platform to get the regulatory information out of the documents that they, that they use. So imagine a mortgage company, uh, somebody wants to know what are the guidelines around closing an FHA loan. Uh, instead of having to go dig through and get on page 274 to find the answer to that question, they just ask capacity. Capacity comes back instantly with a response. And so what go, where do you go from here? What, uh, what does this new investment, what expansion does this help aid? Uh, you know, what with the new identity, are you going into a new market or is it just kind of refining uh, based on feedback? What happens from here after these changes? From here on out, we are continuing to build out the platform. Um, so that includes both strengthening the workflows, um, adding additional app integrations, as well as building off of our patent pending technology around document mining. Uh, it also involves us growing our sales and marketing teams to get capacity in the hands of more people. Uh, and then finally, uh, just to continue to look for new ways for us to bring an automation suite into the office. What is the, you mentioned potentially hiring, how much of the engineering backend do you do in St. Louis? And how's it been? We've heard so much, especially with all the new initiatives designed at upping the area's workforce game. How's it been for you recruiting and hiring? Have you had any trouble, especially with those coders and others who have uh, the necessary skills? Same place. St. Louis is a great place to hire. Uh, about two-thirds of our team is in product and development, and we're able to pull in the best and brightest from the region. I would put our engineers up against anyone in Silicon Valley or Boston or Austin. So you've not had to say, man, we just can't hire for this specific language or skill, so we'll have to get somebody in you know, Silicon Valley or somewhere, somewhere, somewhere else. You've been able to do it all here. So we've, we've kept the entire company here except our sales team. Uh, our sales team is intentionally distributed throughout the country. Uh, but from an engineering perspective, we've been able to find great engineering talent here. And as we look around the office here, I was going to ask about, you know, you're here in, in uh, the Clayton area. But from what I understand, you're moving to the Del Mar Loop. And then also your companies have a history in the Del Mar Loop, too. You're familiar with that area. Uh, big fans of the Del Mar Loop. Uh, so we'll be back in the loop in October. Uh, looking forward to eating at Nudo House down the street that's uh, that's opening up. Uh, and then uh, maybe even take a trolley ride or two. Uh, but no, we, we love the loop. It's close to Wash U. There's, there are a lot of great uh, restaurant options. 
uh, we're, we're big fans of the Loop and looking forward to getting back there. What do you think is the benefit of a company, especially one like this, uh, locating in a dense, walkable area where you've got you know, other companies that you interact with, even if they're competitors? We hear about the benefits of innovation districts, for instance, but just being in an urban area like that, you don't have to get in your car to drive to lunch even, for instance. What's the benefit of that, especially for a company like yours? I think there are a lot of uh, collaborative benefits of being in a place where three people can go walk down the street and go grab a coffee or, you know, two people can meet for lunch over a particular topic. Uh, The fact that the loop has uh, close proximity to WashU means that when we hire new interns, um, they generally don't have to deal with transportation issues. we can have people come directly into the office by foot, which is a nice uh, environmentally friendly way to travel. Is there anything else I haven't asked about? Anything that you think I've missed? Now, the, the only other thing I would add is that uh, if your company is considering what it would be like to implement AI or automation or uh, any kind of uh, process automation or general technology, digital transformation upgrades, come talk with us. Uh, even if we're not the right fit, we can probably point you to the, the folks who are. And we, we tend to find that when we work closely with, with people, uh, we can usually find a, a solution for their problem. I think people are just beginning to learn about AI and learn about all the different applications. I think geospatial is another example of a technology where people didn't realize all the applications that it has. So what, what do you see? You're talking about workflows in, in specific industries, but what do you see as maybe the, the greater frontier for AI, everyday people, their impact on their lives in the next, I don't know what the time frame would be, five years, 10 years? What do you think? I think increasingly we will see the mundanity of work removed where I mean, I saw a stat the other day that said we switch apps 1100 times a day on the average for the average office worker. Uh, another stat that um, we spend up to a third of our time just looking for information within, within the org. And so imagine if you could have that time back to go focus on, the reasons why you were hired in the first place, I, I think it creates a better work environment. I think people are happier. I think people are getting more done and being more productive. Uh, yeah, I just, I see a, a real halo halo effect on implementing this type of technology. And I, there's so much worry, I think, about robots and are they going to take people's jobs and is AI going to be the next frontier of that? But the way you describe it is the mundane parts of work, the stuff that no, nobody likes to do, going to the file cabinet and filing, you know, rifling through all the papers and that stuff that's just, you think, I'm wasting my time here. That's what you're trying to eliminate, right? You're exactly right. Uh, you, we'll pick on the onboarding example. Uh, think about all the steps that go into onboarding a new team member. Scheduling a meeting with the hiring manager, setting up the laptop, filing a bunch of forms, filling out insurance paperwork. Uh, Imagine if you could take a process like that, have a digital representation of that process in the form of a workflow, and then over time take the stages of that workflow and um, have an AI go perform those tasks so you can focus on um, the the higher value-added tasks within that overall process. I think that's a big win for everyone. 
So there you have it, another tech company expanding in St. Louis. Can't wait to see what they do with those new offices in the Del Mar Loop. Are they going to reach capacity? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> and if they are, we'll talk about it here on Nothing Impossible. Tune in next week. Find the podcast. We'll talk to you later. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.